Welcome to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries, a Christ-centered conversation that will encourage and inspire you to live a better life. Now let's join Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. Welcome to Hacks for Life. I'm Galen Jones, your host, and I'm here with um, Scott Rahi, and, and we're going to talk about a a concept that I I haven't heard about, but I'm anxious to to learn about. It's called homology. Homology, and it's um, it's in the context of the whole question about is evolution um, incompatible with Christianity, and we're going through the whole what evidence do the pro-evolution crowd what evidence do they provide to say evolution is true and this is one of the homology is one of those homology is one of the areas it's not about being homeless it could be at some level i mean i don't you know and not in my notes but who knows (laughs) so let me start by defining it okay um because you gave me a look last time that said you'd better define this yeah because i'm I'm, if you know if our listeners are anything like i am i you know these these terms are new to me. Well, so I, I anticipated that, so I actually wrote it down. This is Merriam-Webster's definition. Okay. Uh, homology is correspondence or similarity in form or function between parts, such as the wing of a bat and the human arm, of different species resulting from modification of a trait possessed by a common ancestor. Similarity of traits reflecting common descent. So the idea being... Like with the bat, you've got the arm of the bat or the wing of the bat has similar function with elbow and fingers Mm -hmm. and stuff. And there's similarities with the human arm. And so the idea is they have similar form. So the the guess is or the, the speculation or hypothesis is that they both inherited this form from a common ancestor. Mm. So this is descent with modification that we're talking about. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? So homology... um, we could have a similar form, but does that have anything to do with function? Form well, that's a function? question, yeah. That, that's a question. But they, they this specifically looks at similar forms. Okay. And says, is the form similar? They might. They're not saying absolutely, mm-hmm. but it might have a common ancestor. It might be evidence that evolution has occurred. Okay. So they're not really concerned about the function part. I, well, I, was, I, I suspect they are. I mean, if, you know, but... It's you know the arm is used to be able to lift things and it retracts and mm-hmm. it extends, mm-hmm. and uh, for some reason I'm on the radio and I'm extending and retracting my yeah. arm while yeah, we're talking. I'm, I'm, and a and a bat's wing does the same kind of thing. So, um, you know, I suspect that functionality would be part of it, but it's not explicitly described here in the notes that I've got. Okay. So let me read. There's a quote, Michael. I've mentioned this before. Michael Denton uh, wrote a book called Evolution: A Theory in Crisis, and this is to me. Um, one of the important pieces of this, he, he really sort of draws this out. And so I, instead of me just kind of trying and to explain And this is it, homology. Homology. Okay. It's written in relation to homology. Okay. He's got a chapter. I think it's called The Failure of Homology, I think. Um, but here's the here's the quote. It's, it's on pages 143 to 145 of his book. Homology provided Darwin with apparently positive evidence that organisms had undergone descent from a common ancestor. Furthermore, the evolutionary explanation of homology appeared to be one instance where evolution seemed far more plausible than its creationist alternative. On the face of it, it would appear very difficult to explain by a creationist theory the persistence of the so-called pentadactyl pattern 
in the limbs of all the major terrestrial vertebrates from the first amphibian up to the present day forms. Now, pentadactyl means like five fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, up to the present day forms. Why should a creator be restricted to the same basic pentadactyl design in designing the flipper of a whale or the wing of a flying reptile? Darwin taunted his creation opponents. And this is Darwin talking. He's Denton is now quoting Darwin. Nothing can be more hopeless than to attempt to explain this similarity of pattern in members of the same class, by utility or by the doctrine of final causes. The hopelessness of the attempt has been expressly admitted by Owen in his most interesting work on the nature of limbs. On the ordinary view of the independent creation of each being, we can only say that so it is, that it has pleased the creator to construct all the animals and plants in each class on a uniform plan. But this is not a scientific explanation. So that's the end of the Darwin piece of this. He's going back. You know, this is Denton talking again. The phenomenon of homology has remained the mainstay of the argument of the argument for evolution right down to the present day. So this is important to people that are, that are pro-evolution. Okay. The latest edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica gives the pride of place to homology in dis- in discussion of the evidence uh, for evolution, and this is now he's now quoting the Encyclopedia Britannica. It must be stressed that Darwin himself never claimed to provide proof of evolution or of the origin of species. What he did claim was that if evolution has occurred, a number of otherwise inexplicable facts are readily explained. The the evidence for evolution was therefore indirect. The indirect evidence for evolution is based primarily on the significance of similarities found in different organisms. The similarity of plan is easily explicable if all descended with modification from a common ancestor by evolution. And the term homologous is used to denote corresponding structures formed in this way. In vertebrate animals, the skeleton of the forelimb is a splendid example of homology. In the bones of the upper arm, forearm, wrist, hand, and fingers, all of which can be matched bone for bone, in rat, dog, horse, bat, mole, porpoise, or man. The example is all the more telling because the bones have become modified in adaptation to different modes of life, but have re- retained the same functional plan of structure inherited from a common ancestor. Now, that's the case that they make. And so going back to what Denton has to say here, and he's got a whole chapter on this. Here's what Denton says. The validity of the evolutionary interpretation of homology would have been greatly strengthened if embryological and genetic research could have shown that homologous structures were specified by homologous genes and followed homologous patterns of embryological development. Such homology would indeed be strongly subjects, uh, suggestive of true relationship, of inheritance from a common ancestor. And then here's the key. But it has become clear that the principle cannot be extended in this way. Homologous structures are often specified by non-homologous genetic systems, and the concept of homology can rarely be extended back into embryology. Now, what he's saying is, if you're going, if you know, you think about this whole um, descent with modification. Mm-hmm. I develop some sort of change that makes me faster, or able to jump higher, or able to reach things higher, or what live longer, you know, fight better, something like that. Whatever inside of me, 
wherever that change comes from, let's say it's some sort of genetic code that is that is changed. Um, when I pass that along, that genetic code will exist in the same place, and the development in my child will come about in the way that it came about with me. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What he's saying is, yeah, these these similarities, these homolo- the, the homologous structures. If it's true, then the origin of these structures needs to be shown to be coming from a similar place. In other words, the same gene, for example, mm-hmm. would produce the change. But what he's saying is when you look at the genetic level, it's not the same. They're coming from different places in completely different ways just because the form is the same. does not mean they inherited from the same um, origin. Right. And that means the evidence strongly suggests that that, that that points away from a common ancestor. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So. Just these forms looking the same does not mean that they inherited and just you know diverged over time. You can't trace them back. In other words, All right? Now he gives an he gives an it's very technical the way he describes it, but it's on one page one sixty three of his books. He he goes through a discussion of the alimentary canal, and I don't mean elementary like elementary school. It's alimentary a l i m e n t a r y. The alimentary canal is everything that well the the official definition is. Uh, and I got this from biologydictionary.net. It says, the alimentary canal is a continuous passage starting from the mouth and ending at the anus, which carries food through different parts of the digestive system and allows waste to exit the body. So starting with the mouth, mm-hmm. esophagus, stomach, intestines, all the way through the colon and you know all that. Mm-hmm. that the whole thing is the alimentary canal. Um, and the alimentary canal is one of the areas where he says we see things that look similar but they don't have similar origins mm-hmm. and he goes into some depth but so so that would be like uh, let me just for clarification for mm-hmm. for me and, and maybe um a listener or two like all of the these critters yep. have a, a mouth and they have a digestive system um Right, yeah. and but there's no indication that they all came from one. The idea is the if if the these different forms all have an alimentary canal, mm-hmm. and if they genuinely did, inherited them through this evolutionary process, the origin of the alimentary canal should be from the same general place. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It should come about in the same way. And what he, what and we he, should be able to identify that. Yeah. And on page 146, he goes through and discusses this particular thing. And he talks about sharks and lampreys and frogs and birds and reptiles. And I'll read, uh, if I read the thing, I, you know, it bogs down in some technical mm-hmm. terms. But effectively, on sharks, he finds the finding is, I mean, this isn't disputed. This mm-hmm. is known. The alimentary canal is formed from the roof of the embryonic gut cavity, you know, without going in. In lampreys, it's from the floor of the embryonic gut cavity. Ah, okay. So, so they're going. Let me let me see if I got this. Yeah. So they're going back to the to the embryo, mm-hmm. and they can tell from the embryo how this is being formed. It's formed in different ways. Yeah. And so, if it's formed in different ways, it can't be coming it can't from be coming the, from the, the same the genes. Same, yeah. It can't be coming from the same. Yeah. It can't be inherited in the same way. Right. From uh, from frogs, it comes from the roof and the floor, and from birds and reptiles, it comes from what's called the lower layer of the embryonic disc. So these are not the they, they you know they say oh this proves that they're coming yeah, from yeah, the same. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, they should all be you know coming about from the same like all from the roof or all from you know 
it's not happening. Yeah. He and he does the same thing. He talks about um, he talks about the kidney, the development of the kidney. He talks about other areas, um, vertebrate forelimbs. He actually challenges the whole idea of these verte- these vertebrate forelimbs and oh, they look so similar and they don't appear to have these same inherited similarities. I didn't get this from this gene uh, in the same way that this other you know mm-hmm. species did or whatever so you know just uh, and I, I don't i don't want to get us off track i say that a lot um but i'm i'm uh, listening to a book it's called the body counts and i can't remember the um the author but it's really interesting he's a uh, psychiatrist and mm-hmm. he's dealing with um a trauma we'll, we'll, for mm-hmm. uh, without going into big detail but they they were looking for you know the the the, the trauma gene, or if this could be carried on, yep. and and he didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, but he um, pointed out that this the idea of looking for um, the addiction gene because you know there's right. the, there's these genes that we have uh, some dysfunctions or social dysfunctions or irregularities or whatever we want to call them, um, and we look for the gene, and he said this this whole thing about finding the a gene yeah. and that is the same in every person yep. um is very is, is extremely complex, it is be, complex because the formation of it and this is kind of what I'm hearing mm-hmm. y- you talk about um is just not as simple as oh well it forms the same way in everyone that's and, right and he argues it doesn't it's exactly right. So yeah, yeah. that was. It's interesting that you're talking about this, and, and people look for that all the time. Here's the the gene for belief in God. Here's the gene for all, and yeah. it's never it's never as easy as that. Yeah. It, that, so to put it in a, a quick sentence, um, I've tried to sum that. This, if you want to read the whole thing, it's on page 146 of the book. But um, for common descent to be plausible, these similar structures would need to come from similar genes and similar patterns of development. If these similar genes and patterns of development aren't present, then it seriously erodes the case that similar structures derive from common descent. So what it does is it undermines this idea. I mean, homology at one level is it's not a big deal. These forms look the same as each other. Mm-hmm. And you can compare, you know, you've got arms, you don't have arms, whatever. Right. That's fine. But then they extend that and say, thus, you both come from a common ancestor. But if that part is to be believed, they have to come from similar genes and similar patterns of development, and they don't. So it appears that what it sounds like to me is that you've got a designer that's got a pattern that he likes. And he comes about it in different ways. And oh, I think you need an alimentary canal, and so do you. That doesn't mean you inherited from that one. It just means I think an alimentary canal is a good idea. And this is how we're going to make it in It you. seems to me to be an argument for yeah. design. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's <laughs> yeah. homology. Let's talk for a few minutes about um, Darwin's finches, you know, finches, birds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He went to the Galapagos. I think it was on the Beagle. And he studied, and he came up with a lot of his theories. The interesting thing is a lot of the current um, Darwinists will point to these these finches and say, you know, this is proof of change over time. And what they would see, what Darwin actually recorded, is he would he would capture some of these finches and he would note that as the environment changed, like you would have a very wet climate and the finches' beaks were smaller, and then you would find that. If there was a period of drought, the finches' beaks wow. became larger, and they were they were larger because they were needed to crack the nuts. 
that were harder to crack in that in that environment and he took that and he sort of extrapolated that out and said look over time these changes that occur with the finch beaks getting bigger or whatever you're going to eventually end up with a whole new species these little sort of changes accumulate until you have an entire new species of bird and eventually it's not even a bird Mm -hmm. it's something else you know and so i want to read a few things related to this remember i'm quoting a lot because i don't want to get these things wrong it's important not to do that um this particular one comes from jonathan wells uh, wrote a book called icons of uh, icons of evolution and this is pages 168 and 169 so i'm going to just read this really quick um he says peter and rosemary grant made their first trip to the galapagos in 1973 with the help of several other biologists the grants set about catching and, brand- and banding finches on seven of the islands uh, each finch was carefully measured for body weight, the lengths of its wings, legs, and toes, and the length, width, and depth of its beak. There was a variation among the finches in all of these features, especially the beaks. In 1975, the Grants and their colleagues had focused their on t- attention on one of the smaller islands, Daphne Major. During the early 1970s, Daphne Major received regular rainfall that supported an abundant food supply and a large finch population. In normal rainy seasons, such as that of 1976, the island received about five inches of rain. But in 1977, only about an inch fell. In the 1977 drought caused a severe reduction in the availability of seeds and the island's population of medium ground finches declined to about 15% of its former size. The Grants and their colleagues observed that survivors of the drought tended to have slightly larger bodies and slightly larger beaks. They also noted that the supply of small seeds was drastically reduced that year. They concluded that natural selection had strongly favored those birds capable of cracking the tough, large seeds that remain. So we weren't really talking about the, the, the beaks growing like you don't grow if I get a beak size that doesn't mean next week I'm going to have a larger beak that just means birds with the larger beaks survive mm-hmm. they're more fit they're going to pass on their genetics so over time these larger beaks you're going to see these in, in the next generation yeah. and whatnot yeah um, as a result of the drought the average beak depth of, of medium ground finches increased about five percent beak depth is the distance between the top and bottom of the beak at its base in other words where it joins mm-hmm. to the head the amount they, this amounted to a difference of about half a millimeter the thickness of a human thumbnail this may not seem like much but for the finches on daphne major in 1977 it meant the difference between life and death it was also a dramatic example of natural selection in the wild people who live on the west coast of north or south america know that every few years we can expect an el nino a disturbance in winter weather caused by unusually warm air Uh, over the pacific ocean in the winter of 1982 to 1983 an el nino brought heavy rains to the galapagos islands over 10 times more than normal and 50 times more than fell during the drought plant life exploded and so did the finch population after the 1982-1983 el nino with food once again plentiful the average beak size in medium ground finches returned to its previous value in 1987, Peter Grant and his graduate student, Liesel Gibbs, reported in Nature that they had observed a reversal in the direction of selection due to the change in climate. Hmm. 
Large adult size is favored when food is scarce, they wrote, because the supply of small and soft seeds is depleted first and only those birds with large bills can crack open the remaining large and hard seeds. In contrast, small adult size is favored in years following very wet conditions, possibly because the food supplies the supply is dominated by small soft seeds. So the evolutionary change that the Grants and their colleagues had observed during the drought of 1977 was reversed by the heavy rains of 1983. Selection had flipped, wrote Weiner. The birds took a giant step backwards after their giant step forward. As Peter Grant wrote in 1991, the population, subjected to natural selection, is oscillating back and forth with every shift in climate. Now what that means is, Darwin's idea being, okay, the ones with the bigger beaks survived, right. they pass along their genetics, so their children have bigger beaks. The next generation, you know, the, of those children, the ones with the slightly bigger beaks, they're going to survive, and so they keep going, and there's this linear projection, or linear trajectory over time, and you're going to have this change occurring sort of in one way. Mm-hmm. You get bigger beaks, you get different animals over time, whatever. What they actually observed is that there's this sort of mean, mean like a an average, mm-hmm. and the birds varied. Like the beak sizes varied on either side of that, but they would always come back to the average. They would smaller than larger, larger than smaller, and what that tells me is that this linear change that Darwin postulated isn't happening. They're sta- they're staying finches, mm-hmm. and their beaks grow, or the the birds with the larger beaks survive. In, in climates where it's really dry, but then normal being, you know, so th- this idea that there's this change and, you know, microevolution, we admit that there's change among uh, a species, but we don't see evidence for changes that lead to different to species, species and different yeah. kinds of animals. And this, they use this evidence for with, with Darwin's finches and said, look, it's proof, the beaks change size, whatever. Yeah, the beaks change size, and then they go right back. <laughs> And it's and not, they leave out that small detail. Of course, I don't. I don't think most people know. Yeah, it. I don't think most people know it. But that's so. This is the second one of these sort of lines of evidence. There's a whole lot more, and I'm not going to cover all of them. Um, but the next time, let's let's stop here. I want to talk a little bit about junk DNA, and there's a couple of others that I want. Maybe we'll get through, um, you know, kind of some of the evidence that they use, and then I'm going to start looking at what do we what, what do we look at this as evolution really doesn't have a good foundation we'll, we'll as do that. believers as believers okay. well I, I mean you don't have to be a believer there are people that are not christians that, that reject evolution ah, okay okay um, so you don't have to be a christian to reject evolution so but we'll put a pin in it here and then we'll continue on okay look forward to it all right we'll see you you've been listening to hacks for life with galen jones of james group ministries the james group is a non-profit christ-centered organization that seeks to serve the community by offering skilled caring support for anyone in need. For help, call 972-243-4673. That's 972-243-4673. For questions and comments, email galen at jamesgroupministries.net. That's G-A-L-O-N at jamesgroupministries.net. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Hacks for Life with Galen Jones.